0: Today's episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Podgo is providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co. That is, one more time, p-o-d-g-o dot c-o, podgo dot co. This episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling is sponsored by Blue Chew. Let's talk about something we could all use more of right now. That's right, sex. Great sex. Guys, now you can increase your performance and get extra confidence in the bed. Listen up. BlueChew.com is the place to go. That's right, blue, like the color blue. BlueChew brings you the first chewable with the same ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. If you could benefit from more confidence right where it counts, BlueChew is the fast and easy way to enhance your performance. Right now we've got a special deal for our listeners. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first shipment free. That's right. When you use the promo code Empire, you pay just $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-2.com, the promo code EMPIRE, to try it for free. That's right, bluechew.com. Use the promo code EMPIRE.
1: The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal A.J. Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what?
0: Okay. Uh. To the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling, I am your host J.P. John Paz, and with me today is a very special guest, a five-time OVW Southern Tag Team Champion, a two-time OVW World Television Champion, Doctor Ted, Doctor Man Beast, Mister Ted McNeil. Welcome to the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. It's a it's a pleasure as well as a privilege to be here. I know. Uh, I'm coming up after you've had some really great guests on the show. And so if anything, I'm just honored to, to have the opportunity to chat with you for a little bit, talk shop about some wrestling and just get a chance to really just, just shoot the breeze a little bit. Yeah. Thank you for coming on.
0: I appreciate it. It's going to be some uh, good, fun stuff. So what's been going on in your world? What have you been up to?
1: Well, uh, of course, every week I do the uh, the Monday Locker Room podcast uh, on part of the Hamid Media Network. Uh, we just kind of talk about the latest wrestling news. And, and one of the things that we do that I kind of rib myself, and it's kind of fun, though, at the same time, even though every week I have to challenge myself to do it, it we do a, a Monday morning monologue where basically I, I try to run through some of the – news stories of the week and try to make some kind of punny joke about it. It's Imagine if, uh, you know, like the Jimmy Fallon monologue, but if there was a lot worse jokes, a lot of bad dad jokes, basically that's what we do. And <laughs> uh, that's been a lot of fun. I've been actually working and trying to get back in ring shape. I actually uh, uh, helped train a class earlier tonight. And, uh, man, I'll tell you what, trying to get back in ring shape 15 years, almost 20 years later from when I originally started, it's uh, it's a lot harder the when the older you are. <laughs> I'm definitely feeling the the bumps, but uh, I'm excited to get a chance to, you know, that, I'm not looking to you know have a second resurgence of a career or anything, but just to be able to get in the ring and, and show things, or if you know I'm ever needed for those kind of opportunities, it's always good just to be ready in case you get the call, and uh, you know, because I I had at one point thought about reaching out to, to try to uh, get a look again, but it's like you know it, while it's at one point, I'd love to come on as like a, a writer, a producer, an agent, uh, something along those lines I feel I could do really well with. But, you know, you never know if you're going to reach out and they say, well, we don't need that, but we do need uh, another body. And so you always got to be ready to go just in case. Uh, so have just been doing that and as well as I, I see patients during the day. Uh, as a physical therapist, I, I do have a doctorate. I'm not a gimmick doctor. I have a doctorate uh, physical therapy degree. And so uh, I see people usually in the home after they have like a total knee surgery, total hip surgery, Uh, total shoulder, uh, back fusion, and uh, just help them kind of transition from right after the surgery to being able to get back out into the community. So I guess in a a nutshell, you know, besides the wrestling thing, doing the doctor thing during the day and uh, just trying to keep busy, man, you know, it's it's a crazy time right now. And I think really the best thing you can do is, you know, rather than complain about circumstances the way they are is, you know, try to make the most out of your time and your opportunities as best you can.
0: That is great, and when I had been on last week on my Pro Wrestling 101, we had been talking about getting in shape, and he had mentioned you, and how, you know, that first bump back and getting in shape is a lot harder than, you know, the the layman or, like, the the non-wrestler thinks.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll be hurting for a couple days, I, I feel my brain's a little jarred, and it's you underestimate I me mean, they've actually done i'm sure some have heard this but they did a physics study some time ago and actually found every time you take a bump in that ring and this is a normal bump mind you not necessarily a bump from the top rope or to the floor or any of the other crazy stuff you might see but it's a normal bump in the center of the ring um, and that's also important too if you take a bump on the outside of the ring it's much much harder on the body than it is inside the ring but uh, they they equated it to about the same as getting rear-ended at 25 miles an hour which granted most of the time, you know, it's good. You're going to, you know, might be have a little hash or shaking up, but you do it constantly over and over again. And certainly the, the bumps do add up over time. Now, granted, once you kind of get in, into what Rip Rogers, one of my trainers, would call bump shape, then those bumps at least become more tolerable. But when you're away from the adrenaline of the crowd and you're first waking up in the morning and your joints are stiff, uh, that's when you. Start, that's when you really feel those bumps. Uh, it's usually not so much when it happens. It's it's the next day that you end up paying for it.
0: Rip Rogers, he is just uh, a hoot, if you will. He's just yes, he's hilarious. <laughs> that's a nice way he's to nuts. put it. <laughs> so funny. I interviewed him a few years ago, and before like setting it up, I said, "Hey, you know, I left a message. Hey, Rip, this is you know, John blah blah blah, the whole spiel." Like two minutes later, he called back, but I, I something happened. Either my son or somebody distracted me, so I wasn't able to get to the phone. He literally leaves like this curse-filled ten-second message. Is this a fucking rib? Did you just fucking call me or what? What the fuck's calling? What's what's going on? Call me back! Like I couldn't believe him. Like this guy is hilarious. Like, yes. but <laughs> but he might be a little crazy.
1: He is. And as I think, you know, and all, all the greats in some way or another might have a screw loose here or there. So certainly, you know, he checks that box. But you know, he certainly has a, a mind for wrestling, and I, I feel uh, very honored to have had the opportunity to train with him over the years. Especially given his track record of guys that he's helped uh, bring up to the main roster. So is he like your main trainer, or was he like your finishing
0: coach? Was he the guy who basically um, trained you from start to finish?
1: It, it's it's hard. To, no, I would say. I would I want to get I would give Rip probably most of the credit, but I, I can't I, as much as I love Rip I can't say it, it, I got it all from him. I was very fortunate at OVW to have so many opportunities thrown from so many different minds. And everyone in wrestling, I mean, they always say there's a right way and a wrong way. But really, uh, I think you had Doctor Tom on recently, and I, I don't know if he said it, but I remember uh, talking to him once, and he's like, "It's, it's fake flavors of ice cream." So it's still ice cream at the end of the day, but everyone has their own favorite flavor. So I getting a chance to learn from uh, Jim Cornette when he was booking for a time, learned a lot of a lot about tag team wrestling and just building a, a stories. Uh, working with Al Snow and and that was more on the production side and television writing side. Uh, I learned a lot from Joy Mercury in the ring. I got a chance to uh, for about a year or so. I have a series of matches at some of the OBW house shows and live events. Uh, Mike Mondo was another one. He was the guy that first started me, taught me how to bump, but he was another one I got in the ring with uh, after he had his run with the Spirit Squad and working with Triple H and Sean. It actually was a really cool opportunity when he – back to OBW because he had helped impart a lot of that knowledge that he gained at that time to us. And so at really, between that actually, as well as uh, at the time Jim Cornette was booking, I feel as, as our tag team game uh, with myself and my tag team partner, Random Revolver, at, at that time, I, I really, I would not even say if you go back and watch, I'm really I I hate putting myself over. I'm the worst at it. And it's actually one of the worst things in wrestling. You should always be willing to put yourself over. But I will say as a tag team, uh, we were pretty damn good. Uh, Much as I I hate to pat myself on the back. But... um, but it was only because we had the opportunity to get in the ring and, and learn from guys like Mike Bondo, who had a chance to have runs with Shawn Michaels and Triple H, and Jim Cornette teaching us how to build these stories and, and character development. Uh, so really, it was, it was a whole bunch of people. I can't give anyone credit. I'd say I'd give Rip the, a lot of the credit because he helped really develop our psychology and skills, and I probably spent more time under him than, than anyone else, uh, You know, but I I feel like I was in a very fortunate situation in OVW to get a chance to learn from so many different minds and and through so many different eras, too, from being under WWE to being independent to having uh, it under Impact or TNA. Uh, There's a short-term Ring of Honor deal we had when Jim Cornette was around. So, uh, you know, it's just been a a really – it really has been a privilege and a, a pleasure to get a chance to learn from so many great minds in the business. Yeah,
0: I feel like OVW had so many, like, facelifts, you know, like so many different eras of OVW. You know, you had the Heyman era, the, the Cornetta era before that. Obviously, the WB era was was all encompassing that, but then it was like Impact had him for a little bit, Bring of Honor had him for a cup of coffee, and you were kind of there for a lot of it.
1: Yeah, I started in 2004. Uh, actually, just after my 18th birthday, I actually tried to start running at OVW at 16, but uh, by Kentucky State Law, you had to be 18. So as soon as I turned 18, graduated high school and then started training there and uh I was probably in the class about a year and a half before I started start getting uh house show opportunities but really I, I started working more as a referee and that was a great learning experience getting a chance to referee with guys like uh, CM Punk I learned a lot from him and then you also had guys like Cody Rhodes who was just kind of getting a star Sean Spears who was actually even at that time pretty well seasoned as a worker like he he was really really smooth and in the ring and, and he had it at that point but obviously he wouldn't get his break till many years later but just getting a chance to be around those guys and learning so many different styles of wrestling because it was just a, a hodgepodge of different guys in there all the way from your Matt Seidel's all the way up to your uh, Vladimir Kozlov's and it was just a, it was an interesting time but it was a fun time and I'd say I'd as a referee, if I can give any anyone advice that wants to get into wrestling, if you have the opportunity to referee, definitely take it because there is probably no quicker way to really pick up knowledge as far as how understandings of how to work a match uh, as there is being a referee because you just get so much more exposure. You're working more matches throughout the night, and uh, it's just a really, really incredible learning experience for anyone looking to get into it.
0: As far as being that referee, do they actually train you to be a wrestler or do they train you to be a referee? Like, how does that work?
1: Uh, I mean, it, you train as a wrestler. Everybody trains as a wrestler, even people that want to be a manager. Everyone learns how to wrestle because at the end of the day, you still have to understand the mechanics of what happens in the ring and, and where to be, and that was just the way that OVW was. Now, other schools might do different things, but uh, Danny was really big on if, if you're going to be part of the show, then you need to be able to be ready for, for anything just in case. Because, you know, there's always the chance that, uh, you know, a, a manager's match if it's a special attraction or something like that. You just never know when you might have to take a bump or, or do some of those things. And so, you know, not everyone, I think, is expected to be able to work a, a 60-minute Broadway match, which is kind of, the, the I guess, the the gold standard of, of how Rip would teach. But at the very least, to be able to, to know how to take a bump and work a spot, um, I'd say pretty much, and most, mostly everyone that was there, whether they were referee or wrestler, still had to train the same way.
0: When you're kind of coming up, and, and Rip is training you, right? Is he one of those trainers that is not looking for you to fail, but he's going to basically be a hard ass, be a tough ass? So oh, yeah. then, he, then he softens up, or does, or is it kind of the other way around?
1: Um. No, if anything, if he gives you hell, then it it usually means that he likes you and sees potential in you. If he doesn't say anything to you, then it usually means that he could care less and doesn't see anything in you. So I had to learn that over time, though. I didn't know, oh, he's yelling at me, so that's a good thing. I just took it as, man, this guy's a – just, he hates me. <laughs> this, is mm-hmm. what, this is what I thought. You know, he cussed me out, and, you know, if, if you did something wrong in a match, then uh, in class, he would just ring the bell and say, get the F out. And you a lot of times, didn't know why, and then he'd, he'd have someone else go in there and say, show him how to do it, and then he would have someone else do the spot and explain it. So you always were on your toes. Anytime you were in the ring, you know, at any point, if you messed up, he was going to ring the bell and, and pull you out of the ring. And uh, it was, the biggest thing you wanted to do is, is, at no point have that happened to you, and if you could get through an entire match without getting dinged, then at that point, you at least knew that you were getting somewhere as far as understanding how to work a match and then over time he would have people work longer and longer matches until ultimately he'd have uh, the the more seasoned guys in the class work sixty, 60 minute broadways um, and then of course he you know because rips you know he, he has to go just one more extra mile then he had uh, actually myself and a my old tag team partner and revolver, he had us do a, a 90 minute. Broadway, uh, it's on YouTube somewhere if anyone wants to watch it. And then uh I don't know if it's on YouTube either, but uh, he had another guys in class do a two hour Broadway match, <laughs> and then uh, I think someone else did uh, two hours in one minute just so they could say they beat the record or something like that. So Rip, he's just he's always trying to push the limit and push the extra mile because he truly feels as as a wrestler it's up to you to to be the best that you can be. So when you get the call even if they just want you to be a gimmick and and not actually go in there and wrestle, or if they want you to be a world wrestling machine, you're ready for anything. Yeah. I think
0: he's old school in a certain way, but I feel like that is the way to go. I don't know. Call me crazy, but I think that's kind of the the right way to, to go about things and, and, and train. I know maybe this generation might be a little bit softer and maybe he might rub some people the wrong way, but I like that, that mentality.
1: Yeah, and, and I do too, and it, it's certainly not for everybody, but, you know, I, I think the proof's in the pudding as far as the people that Rip's brought up, the most recent probably of which would be Serena Deeb, who's just killing it uh, mm-hmm. on the yep. scene up there. And uh, actually, it was funny, because she was one of the first people I met. We were kind of in the same, I guess, quote-unquote class. We started around the same time. And, uh, you know, obviously, she's gone and, and is doing just incredible right now, tearing it up over on AEW. And, uh, but it just comes from Rip, you know, having that tough love. And, and one thing he always had with the girls, too, is he never let the girls train together. Uh, the girls had to train with the guys because they had to learn how to bring that intensity uh, into anything they did. And so that way, whenever they fought each other, because at the time, yeah, I think at the mid-90s, other than certainly there were some great women's wrestlers at the time, but a lot of the stuff they were presenting was more kind of, you know, the, the brawn panty matches and the lingerie matches and whatnot. So it was really more about the – uh the, the TNA, so to speak, like for uh, no pun intended, and uh, but Rip, you know, was all about no. If you're going to get in there and wrestle, you need to learn how to wrestle, and you have to bring that intensity in that fight and make it look like a competition. And uh, I feel because of that, so many people were able to to gain that knowledge and get better was because of that tough love and uh yeah i don't i don't know if it would fly necessarily in in today's environment and the, just the the more pc nature of just the culture nowadays but for for learning how to wrestle and learning how to work i'd i'd say I, I'd, for for me personally and my learning style i felt it was very very good and obviously it helped worked out for a lot of other people too
0: when you're there and Rip is there. Who's, like, in charge? Obviously, I guess Danny Davis is still there, but who's, like, the head booker of OVW when you first started? Was it Cornette?
1: It was Cornette, yes. Uh, Yeah, Cornette. And one of my very first experiences with Cornette was, uh, I guess, somebody had uh, leaked out something that was going to happen on the show uh, to the fans outside and rip came over or not rip. <laughs> Whenever I think of people yelling and cussing, I just think of rip, but no, it was Jim Cornette this time. And, uh, he said, if you do anything to F with my business, I will, I will uh, kill you with my bare hands. And if I can't do that, then I'm going to take a gun and I'll shoot you <laughs> something along those lines. That was like, Oh my God, this guy's crazy. I don't want to make him mad. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, it was because he has such a, a reverence and respect towards the business that anything that gives away that this is, is phony or fake is, is not only a disservice to really what, what we do, but really it, it hurts what we do because, you know, at the end of the day, we're still trying to make people believe what they're seeing is is part of a, a true story that they're watching unfold beho- before their eyes, like a movie. You know, you don't go to a movie and then 20 minutes before uh, – you know, the show, They before the movie starts, they show you how they do all the special effects and all everything. It would just ruin the movie. Uh, and so I think I feel the same way with wrestling. You have to present it in a certain way to give people that experience every time they come, whether they're sitting there in the stands or watching at home, and you have to find a way to draw them into the show. And uh, and Jim Cornette was all about trying to protect that, that I guess, reverence towards the, the show and respect the product. As far as
0: like Cornette and him being there, what is his actual role? Is is he like the boss boss? Is Danny Davis in charge? Is it kind of a uh, a mixture of power? How did like that? I power guess it was
1: it was went? a mix. Uh, Danny was really more on the operation side of things, uh, you know, securing, you know, making sure the bills were paid, make it uh, kind of making sure you know we were up to code with like fire codes and. Uh, the concession stand was running and that we had house shows booked and, and those kind of things versus Cornette, his role was really driven more towards the television product. But, you know, at the same time, uh, Danny never, at, at least what I can remember at any point, would interfere with what Cornette did. So uh, Cornette more or less had carte blanche on however he wanted to write or, or do TV, and Danny just kind of took care of all the business stuff on the side. And, of course, it evolved over the years, like, you know, there was different trainers, uh, for a while, Lance Storm was, was there training, and then Al Snow came later and, and trained the class, and so they were more in charge of the, the training aspect of it. And, of course, after Jim Cornette booking, uh, we had Paul Heyman come in, and then Al took over from Paul later. And then uh, well, Danny obviously was, was there as owner run the operations side until a couple years ago when, uh, obviously Al, when Al Snow took over. Now he's kind of taken on that role. And uh, so it, it was a mixture of power, but every person in power had, had their own role to play. So there, at no point, at least that I can remember, there was any stepping on each other's toes because they knew whoever was in charge of that role, it was essentially their their place to the, – the buck stopped there, so to speak. So when you're there, and, you know, obviously Cornette is there
0: as well, what, like, what's the time period or the time frame where he leaves and Heyman comes in? Is that 06-ish? I'm trying to think of the, the, the year.
1: Maybe that... so. It, it, it would have been 05 or 06 because uh, I started in 04, and it was, a, I want to say, a year or so after. So I want to say maybe it was 05, but I could be wrong on that. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, do, I remember that night, too. I, I don't. I didn't know what happened, but I know all of a sudden, man, I know as Boris, later it would be known as Centino Morella, uh, was was pulled backstage, and I, I didn't know why. And then come to find out later, that was the whole incident where he yelled at him for uh, laughing when the boogeyman came out. But it was uh, his daughter that was there that night, and he was was excited because the boogeyman was about to scare his daughter. And he was just cheesing over the fact that his daughter was about to. to you know, have the crab scared out of her. But in reality, all Jim Cornette saw was he was smiling at the man that he was trying to make a monster and it essentially was was killing that vision of what he had for the boogeyman and obviously ended up slapping him, got fired. And then uh, it's when Paul Heyman uh, soon came in and had a different, way different style of, of booking. And, and Paul Heyman made made everybody feel like at any moment that their big opportunity was going to come up, whether it was someone that was already under contract and getting that big opportunity to be seen by the writers and get called up to RAW, or if it was someone like myself that wasn't under contract, that at any moment you know, we could be called out for an opportunity to get signed. I remember at one time Paul Heyman pulled all the non-contract guys and, said, and told us all that uh, sometime in the next 90 days he was going to see to it that at least four of us got signed. Maybe more he's going to work on it, but he was going to get at least four of us signed. Uh, I can tell you, after that ninety days, no, none of us got signed, but we were still <laughs> excited to to try to be a part of what he was was creating. Like he would have us be plants in the crowd and cheer and boo and kind of help bring the energy up. And, and to his credit, it love love that idea or hated it, it worked. It helped kind of bring the crowd along with the the product that he was presenting. And it was just a different way of doing things. But it was also it was an exciting time and it was a, a learning opportunity for sure because his his style of booking just was was a, a bit different than how Cornett's would would book is there like a particular
0: one that you like better than the other one like did you like the way Heyman booked over cornet or maybe
1: the other way around uh it's it's hard to say, and i, I don 't want to give a cop out answer, but I really think I really feel it 's a mixture of both like Cornette really liked these uh, you know more long drawn out storylines that kind of developed over a long time, and and I feel like Paul Heyman was more of what I would call the, the crash style of television, where it was just this happens and this happens, and the, and backstage uh, he did a lot more pre tapes, um, and I will I I do like that aspect, and maybe that's where uh, I'll I'll maybe might give the nod to Heyman in that you know there's a lot more character development, like a, a three minute pre tape might have four or five different. Uh, characters or more, but each with a different piece of business, and it, the the stories would kind of flow from one into the other with like a roaming camera backstage. And uh, I really liked how he he did that because even if uh, a certain character or or personality didn't have a lot of TV time, they were still able to progress their story or or their character in some form or fashion, which I do feel is important, especially when you only for us only had an hour of TV time and x amount of guys to to get over. And it was just I feel like a very effective way to get a lot of people in. So so maybe that would be the the only thing is with I'd say cornet style of booking, which I I really like too. Uh, it it kind of left, I guess it was harder to get as many people uh, exposed, so to speak, uh, compared to the the Heyman style of booking. But I don't I don't take anything away from them. But it was just different as far as how they. Uh, what did you think
0: about the plants in the crowd? Was that common? Not common? Is that
1: different? Uh, first, The only time I've ever seen it was when Paul Heyman did it in OVW for that time. So as far as I know, I haven't seen it anywhere else. I'm not saying that it, it doesn't, but that was my, my one and only experience with uh, having or seeing plants in the crowd. I'm sure it's happened. I mean, I, I would assume it happened in ECW when uh, Paul Heyman was there with, in some form or fashion just based on you know he, how quickly he in, implemented that in OVW. But uh, personally, I, I don't think I've, I've ever worked on any other show where, where that was the case.
0: The, like, the interesting thing to me is like, wow, like plants in the crowd. Like you would almost think that's a negative, but you're saying it was a positive. It
1: worked. It made it more exciting. It was actually well, good. You see it on NXT every week. You know what I mean? Like they have plants in the crowd. Right. And, and I'd, I'd say certainly you had your fans in the crowd that would complain about it and, and were kind of against it. And, and understandably so. I feel like if I was you know uh, just someone that was there to enjoy the show and there was obviously, you know, trainees in the crowd trying to direct us to, to cheer a certain way, we'd be just the opposite. Of course, OVW had its own, you know, what you call the heel section, I guess, that would, you know, try to go against the grain, so to speak. But I think that also added to the dynamic of the environment because they were trying to make their voices heard while the, the rest of the people were trying to make their voices heard. And so when you watch the product on television, it, it comes across as just just a, just very exciting because the crowd is is so into it whether they're they're going along with what they're trying to present or if they're trying to force their opinion the other way, it still makes for a, a very lively atmosphere. I feel like it could almost be viewed as a you know as a negative, like, oh you
0: gotta you got do that to get crowd reaction. I know when Cornette would say it, he would say like, oh Heyman kind of was superficial and and it made his booking seem like it was better than it was. I'm not sure if I totally agree with it, but I, I know what hit the philosophy behind. It. I know what he means by it.
1: Yeah, and and to and to that point, you know, I would say the the I guess the the difficulty is then you really don't know who is over and who isn't. So who really is uh, drawing in these people because you have the the people in the crowd that are kind of artificially enhancing that reaction. So I I can see it from both points of view. uh, You know, I'd I'd say perhaps maybe that would be an opportunity for – because honestly, Cornett didn't come to a lot of the – he came to some, but he didn't come to a lot of the, the house shows or live events. But maybe that's where you could meet in the middle and at the live events say, you don't have plants in the crowd, and so then you can really get a true gauge on who's over and who's not, but then maybe for, for the television product to make it seem more like a fever pitch type of atmosphere, kind of can't miss television with people screaming and hollering, uh, maybe to that end, that's where that can be an advantage. But I, I can see it from both points, and I think, I think it can be utilized uh, in a positive way, but I definitely don't think that should be relied upon for, for necessarily every show. With
0: that do you almost come as a different character or are you still yourself in the crowd?
1: Uh, well, we're just, just essentially fans. Uh, and that was the part that was, I think for some was kind of hard. Cause obviously some, some people more than others looked, you know, like they had a, a gimmick or just were, had a certain size to them and you just knew they were a wrestler, but we, right, we were yeah. instructed really just to be otherwise fans in the crowd and, and dress casually and not as a character, uh, yeah, he 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 really did, didn't want us to necessarily stand out as. Uh I guess as a gimmick or anything, but he did make it known that he was supposedly that he was watching us and seeing which one of us was bringing the most energy to the crowd. And uh, whoever he felt was bringing the most energy, he was going to see to it uh, that he was going to put their uh, resume on Vince McMahon's desk or something long ago. It was something ridiculous. And of course, we're all, you know, mouths open drooling, like, oh, man, this is our opportunity. This is this is our chance. And meanwhile, he's just you know, blowing smoke. But to, to his credit, it was ultimately for the betterment of the show.
0: I think it's funny about that because you know now you look back you know he's bullshitting and you know right he, yeah, He's he, working he, you yeah look at a bald
1: guy and tell him he had a great haircut you know <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and somehow make you believe it.
0: I could see some of those smarter fans looking and be like, okay, that's the wrestler. That's the right re- like you know like I could see some of the smarter fans even like looking at you guys yeah. and like, you know, like maybe a little
1: like cook uh, giving you like a stink eye. Like what are they doing out here? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm sure the footage is hard to come by now because it's owned by WWE, but if you're able to find anything from like that 0, 05, 06 era, I'd say the time when Punk was really red hot down in OBW, that's when uh, Heyman was booking. And I'm sure you could look out in the crowd and see some people in there that don't look like uh, just regular fans uh, for sure, but. Uh, it, it was an interesting time, to say the least, and you know, whether you agree with the, the plants or, or not, it uh, was definitely a great learning experience as, as much as, like I said, we may have had the, the smoke and mirrors around us as having true opportunities to get signed.
0: I always loved that because my buddy used to tape the, those shows and send them to me, um, either put them on DVD or, yeah, I guess at that point it was DVD, he'd send them to me. Punk versus Brent Albright, that feud was great. Oh, yeah.
1: I uh, actually got a, a chance to referee quite a few of their matches. Uh, they had a 30-minute uh, broad, Broadway or Iron Man uh, uh, at house show once I got to referee. I got to referee a few of them, and, and man, they were so good. It's such a shame uh, Brent Albright never got a, a, a big uh, run. He was just really, really just technically just good in the ring. I guess really where, what what it came down to was just he didn't have that identifiable character. But as, as a worker and a, and a wrestler, I, I have nothing but good things to say about him. He was great and then his what was it his daddy's strap he always had that with him and oh yeah yeah the grandpappy strap or something yes, like that yeah, yeah. The, the big leather strap and uh, of course you know that's going led into the big strap match they had but it was it was a great little story and and i mean if anyone has the ability to go back and watch i mean you can see for yourself where i mean they just tore the house down and most of the time they they called it all in the ring cuz that's the other crazy part is you know you see all these you know elaborate you know technical maneuvers and reversals and whatnot and don't realize with those guys a lot of it was called on the fly and, and not in the back and it's just just a testament to their abilities as as workers
0: absolutely and i just uh, was a big fan of that feud it was very very good and you know you're saying like you, you were the ref for it and you're you know, you're there for this stuff when do you become like a full-time wrestler and get away from the refereeing
1: so so for the longest time, we had the the OVW television show as its own product, and then there was an opportunity, I guess, on a local affiliate channel for us to get more uh, television time. And so what uh, Rip Rogers and, and, I guess, Danny came up with was having a separate TV show that was uh, an hour on a different night and calling it Derby City Wrestling. And so, with that, since I was refereeing and, and in Rip's class, and, and Rip wanted to give me the opportunity to go out there and wrestle, uh, we got to—I I was part of a gimmick called the Mobile Homers, where we were just uh, just redneck characters uh, wrestling in the ring. And uh, that's where I got more opportunities to get out there and, and work in the squared circle, so to speak. And so it was kind of interesting because on one show I would be a referee, and on the other show. Uh, I was the the redneck maniac Ted McNailer or <laughs> uh, the man beast as as I was nicknamed, and uh, so that that was an interesting time and we tried to make a story out of it. At one point, Al had the idea of doing like a Clark Kent type thing where you know I'd, I'd wear glasses as a referee, but then you know be Ted McNailer on the other show. and never really went anywhere, but we tried to play around with it. But but it was interesting because people still knew me on the the DCW show, and so uh, Al uh, saw me uh, I guess selling at a house show and liked the way I was selling and that's where I had the opportunity to uh have my first wrestling match on OVW and just came out as Ted McNaylor my redneck character and the crowd just went along with it even though they you know I'm sure they knew I was the referee but they were I guess popping to see that someone that was in the the non-contract uh realm was getting an the opportunity and that's when i had a chance to work sean spears and go over for the tv title and it was especially being not under contract it was just a really cool opportunity to get a chance to work with some of the contract guys and uh, it was it was definitely a a fun time to to get the opportunity to both wrestle and referee throughout the year uh the Cleveland Today's episode of the
0: two-man power trip of wrestling is sponsored by Lucy. Lucy Nicotine is a company founded by scientists and former smokers looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative. Finally, tobacco alternatives that don't suck. It's 2021. Get rid of the cigarettes, unplug the vape, throw out your dip and get some Lucy Nicotine gum or lozenges. Folks, this is the real deal. A subscription to Lucy comes directly to your house each month, so it's simple, and you don't have to leave the house because Lucy has delivery down. Two-man power trip of wrestling listeners. Go to lucy.co and use promo code POWERTRIP to get 20% off all products, including gum or lozenges. That's lucy.co and use promo code POWERTRIP at checkout. Also, I have to give you this disclaimer. Warning, this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. So go to lucy.co and make sure to use that promo code POWERTRIP like my brother-in-law does. He really, really has switched from cigarettes to Lucy. So it is just an unbelievable thing for me to promote this stuff to you. One more time, lucy.co. Make sure to use the promo code power trip 2007 and uh, that was definitely a big learning year for me such an interesting thing that non-contract guys and the contract guys and you guys are kind of mixed together just kind of explain that because it's 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 really fascinating to me that they have these guys basically they're paying them to train it's just it, you know and obviously they still do it today but it's just interesting to me the way that works
1: yeah, it, it was an interesting dynamic, and there definitely was a divide. Like, even when we'd have uh, post-show meetings, like, you'd have the, the contract. We called it the contract side and the non-contract side. And uh, so, like, if it, on the on the occasion that one of the non-contract guys got signed, and it did happen occasionally, you had your uh, JTG, Santino Morella, Ser, uh Serena, uh and, and the list goes on, but it was, it was funny because then we would like, oh, are you going to go to the contract side now? Are you going to sit with the cool kids? And uh, that just became kind of like the inside rib. But, you know, there definitely was a divide of, you know, these guys are the guys that are here and getting paid, and these are the guys that are looking to get the opportunity to get paid. And so it was a different dynamic, and you definitely felt like it was uh, kind of clickish in that sense and kind of like, you know, there was the over kids and the not-so-over kids. But at the end of the day, you know, when it came time to work with all the contract guys in the ring, at least from my personal experience, all were nothing but professional and ultimately wanted to do the, the best business that, that they could, at least the few that I had the opportunity to work with at, at the time. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's like, wow, these guys are getting paid to
0: train I wonder if you guys are, not jealous, maybe a little bitter towards those guys or think that they had everything handed to them. You guys were the ones that were the workhorses and working hard and, you know, you were not contracted, not being paid to train. Did, was there some sort of sense of maybe jealousy, maybe bitterness at all uh, between
1: between that? I'd say, I mean, for sure, I'd say maybe at the time, you know, because you, 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 you desire what, this group of people have, and looking back on it, you know, I'd say I don't necessarily have those same feelings anymore because I, I get it. You know, the people that were signed were there, you know, were signed for a reason. You know, if you compare how I look back then compared to how the majority of those other guys looked, you know, it was clear as day. You know, they they looked like wrestlers. They looked like athletes. Uh, that being said, certainly there was a few guys that I felt maybe should have gotten an opportunity that didn't. Uh, some guys that just, you know, were really, really talented, but otherwise for some reason or another, whether it was politics or whether it was just not being in the right place at the right times, never got the, the chance to shine. And uh, really, I guess if, if, now looking back, it's, it's, I wouldn't say there's any bitterness or, or anger or negativity, but I'd say may, maybe a little disappointment and not even so much for myself, but uh, the handful of, of guys that I knew that could really go and, and be something good and just never really got an opportunity to, to get that spotlight.
0: I feel like the, the non-contracted guys are, you know, working their ass off, and not that the contracted guys aren't, but they might have a little easier because – you guys are, you know, struggling or you know, you know, trying to make ends meet, trying to make some money, doing this, doing that, and these guys are getting paid. God knows what, you know, amount of money it is, and you guys are in the same situation. So, to me, it's always kind of just wacky that that they do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it really comes down to yeah. You have your group of people that that is hungry, and you have your group of people that's fed. And <laughs> so, at the yeah, end of the day, exactly. they're going to have two different attitudes towards uh, coming to the table. I guess.
0: And you got to think about like all the guys that come through. So I mean, right? Was that you mentioned Kozlov? Is that like the uh, the Paul Burchills of the world were there at that point? Uh,
1: yes, uh, your Stu Stu uh, or Wade Barrett, he was Stu Sanders at the time. I uh, had a chance to work with those guys, and uh, they were they were obviously very good. Uh, Kozlov, obviously, he was. Uh, you know, green as far as wrestling goes, but, you know, well-experienced as far as knowing how to, to throw people around, as I experienced quite a few times in there with them. I, I even remember a quick funny story about uh, Kozlov is they actually banned – uh, doing overhead belly-to-belly suplex. I think someone had uh, almost broken their neck or something the uh, week prior, and so they just were, were going to try banning it altogether. And the week that happened, uh, I actually was working with Oleg or Kozlov, and uh, he was like, I give you belly belly and I, I was like, well, I don't want to get heat or anything. I don't want to uh, get us in trouble, and he just looked at me and goes, I get you over. And he did. He did. With almost minimal effort, I went from one side of the ring to the other, and uh, as far as I know, I don't think he ever got in trouble, but then again, I don't know who was gonna <laughs> tell uh, tell off uh, the uh, the giant Russian backstage
0: <laughs> right
1: he was to me I don't know I, I always liked him I thought he was great maybe
0: he didn't have the the big personality i guess uh, that uh, a lot of the w b guys have but hey, he had that sambo background legit tough guy he's huge uh, had right. a cool had a cool look to him uh, i don't know. I always kind of liked him.
1: Yeah, that, I certainly think there could have been more that was uh, done with them, especially in, in like you know as, as like a, a enforcer type of role, maybe, or even as, as part of a, a team. I, I think you know, some some stuff was lost in translation just from the language barrier. Obviously, you know he, he was able to speak it you know well enough to communicate with with you know the other wrestlers and whoever. But at the same time, when you, you get up there and try to cut a promo. It, it is hard when you have when you're it's not your first language, and so I think that's where the, the disconnect maybe was with his ability to get over. But as as an athlete, I mean, he was obviously, in my opinion, I think he's one of the best pure athletes that that has been around. So in that sense, it's a shame we never got a chance to see more out of him, uh, just because you know from a pure physical standpoint, it, you know, he was he, there was very few that could match him.
0: And I always liked the way he said WWE. He always said double yeah, double. double
1: yes it's yes. <laughs> double double e i like it
0: yes <laughs> i love that as far as like wb when did they actually stop the relationship with ovw and i guess really move primarily to fcw at that point so when does that kind of relationship end and are you in the thick
1: of things at that point I believe it was 2008. I think it was in February or March. And it, I was in the thick of things in the sense that I was I was still doing both. I was wrestling and uh, refereeing on OVW and then uh, wrestling on DCW. And at one point, and this was just was so crazy and interesting, but it was about a month or so prior to the split, they had uh, Shawn Michaels and Triple H come down to watch the show and interact with the talent and everything. And, and then they had a big post-show uh, meeting to to talk to everybody. And during that course of that meeting, they made it a point to say, you know, OVW has been a, a central part of WWE and that uh, will be around as part of WWE for many years to come. And then come, you know, barely a couple months later. And <laughs> then I, I literally was, was at home looking at uh, – just uh, whatever news site I was on and then saw where uh, OVW and WB had split their deal. And I just, it was a shocking to all of us because we were all essentially in the mindset of, oh, okay, this is going to be around a long time because we were told one thing and then obviously that that was not the case. So I, I don't know, you know, all about the inner workings of what what it came down to or why, but uh, I I do know it was was kind of a shocking situation uh, simply because we didn't see it coming.
0: That is like fascinating that they would kind of say, "Oh yeah, we're going to be around forever." I guess lying or whatever you want to say, you know, not really knowing that it was going to happen. But yeah. was that like, was that like, "Oh crap, there goes my the, the opportunity out the window"? Were you thinking that?
1: Um, not necessarily. I mean, maybe maybe for half a second, but then to to feel like we had the opportunity. Uh, to truly create a, a territory again because, I mean, at the time, even though they had pulled out of OVW as, as uh, I guess, as a, as a region for wrestling, we were kind of pretty hot at the time. Our All of our live events uh, were growing. Our, our TV ratings were going up, and uh, we were doing quite well. So if anything, I guess a lot of us were kind of excited at first to, to get the opportunity to basically now be the stars of the show. Uh, DCW had uh, gone – by the well, no, I think that was it was still around a few months later. But obviously, after a while, there wasn't any point because essentially it was all, all non-contract guys, just some of the the more trained guys on the OVW show and the less trained guys on the DCW show, and so that ended up going by the wayside. But uh, but it was our opportunity to step up into these roles, and and guys like Joey Mercury was staying around, uh, Chris Cage, Rob Conway, uh, Roadkill, and uh, a, a few other guys. I think we Dinsmore uh, may have been around back then too. And so, uh, you know, we knew we were going to have a good crop of guys to continue to, to help lead us into this next era, so to speak. And so I, even though it was disappointing to lose that WWE connection, it was still exciting to have the opportunity to potentially grow something ourselves. And I, I think all of our hopes were maybe we can really grow this into a real territory and, and make money as wrestlers doing this. And uh, the prospect of that was very exciting.
0: Is that a little bit later? Is that when ROH kind of comes into play?
1: Uh, that was a, a little bit later. Uh, at first, uh, I think Joey Mercury and Roadkill were the initial uh, bookers for OVW for a short time. And then once a few months later, they had kind of gone their own ways and, and moved away. That's when Danny Davis brought Cornette back. So it was probably about a year or so later that Cornette was brought back to to start booking again. And, uh, and then that's when the Ring of Honor connection happened because uh, Jim Cornette had been working for uh, Ring of Honor at the time.
0: When you kind of see the different promotions come in, I know you'll be on a couple Ring of Honor shows, but is it you want to help OVW build up or do you want to move over like, to Ring of Honor? To it be, like, what's your kind of mindset on where you're at in the business at that point?
1: Uh, I'd say my mindset was really I just wanted to get paid to wrestle. So whether you know, obviously you know the the quicker scenario was just getting signed and then you get paid. But I also had in the back of my head, well, even if that doesn't work out, we we can perhaps build OVW up to a certain point where where we can you know start being able to make a living doing this. But uh, but I'd say certainly my my main goal at the time was to to get paid to wrestle as soon as possible. So in that sense, my priority was to try to get signed somewhere either with a Ring of Honor. Or uh, WWE, and, and interesting enough, even though they had pulled out, to their credit, you know, there was a for a short time. I guess they tried to maintain a relationship with OVW because about once a year or so, uh, Laurinaitis would come down and, and hold a tryout at OVW, and so there was still uh, at least somewhat of a connection for the first couple years, and then eventually they stopped doing that. But I, I don't know how that came about, or or who uh, was able to, to make that happen. Obviously, I'm sure Danny, you know, had had a lot of. Uh, uh, I guess, influence in making that happen to, but who he talked to as far as how to make that happen, I'm not sure, but it was at least nice to still get that opportunity. So, so anyway, it kind of goes back to the time that I didn't care if I was going to get signed by WWE ring of honor, wherever I just was looking to just make money wrestling. Cause I, I knew this is what I wanted to do.
0: The Davis arena was
1: always a, uh, you know, hotbed
0: for uh, wrestling in Louisville, Kentucky, is that place? You know what I mean? Like with like the Sportatorium and the East Arena, never quite as nice. When you actually see them in no. person or or you visit them it's <laughs> a the Davis arena kind of in that category it's like wow legendary building all these guys are to there, and then you go there and you're a little deflated
1: well yeah, because essentially it's just a it's a warehouse that got converted into a, a television studio and I don't think I think people when they hear Davis arena, you think of you know a big enclosed stadium you know like somewhere where they would have uh, a big sporting event, but really it's just a converted warehouse and and for what it is I'll say it's it's at least uh nice in the sense that for, for, for a television studio, you know, it was good for what we needed it for. But certainly if you're coming in, expecting, you know, this big legendary arena, it is kind of like, Oh, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't realize it was just a, a a warehouse that was converted into a TV studio. So I, I can definitely see where people can have a, a I guess a, uh, an idea of how something might be in regards to uh, thinking how uh, the arena is, but in actuality, it, it, uh, people are end up with a, a much different presentation than I think what they expected.
0: So you really have worked for and around OVW, it's got to be 16 years. I mean, you've been kind of around there for a very, very long time. And now they have new owners, right? Matt Jones and the crew. Now they have uh, even other new owners.
1: Yes. Yeah, Matt Jones. And then I believe the owner, I don't remember his name, but of 21C Hotels. And uh, I'm I'm very happy for, for where they're at uh, about a year or so ago, I actually uh, uh, amicably split, split ways with the company and uh, not nothing too crazy. Just, uh, Al and I had a difference of opinion on, uh, I guess prioritizing where the, the business was going. And then I had the opportunity from Ben Hameen to start doing some podcasting stuff. And I'll, I'll be honest, it had con- gotten to a point where I, I didn't feel that necessarily OVW was, was going to be my path to find a way to, to make a, a living in wrestling. And, uh, and whereas Ben Amin asking me to come in, I knew I had the opportunity to come in and have influence and, and help that brand uh, continue to grow. I mean, he'd already done a great job with him and all the staff there. And so uh, I decided just to, to kind of take my ball and, and leave, so to speak. And, and I'm I'm glad I did in the sense that I feel like it's very easy to overcommit yourself with different things. And I think if I would have tried to stick with OVW and do the podcasting thing, uh, probably both would have uh, – I wouldn't have been able to give my full attention to both. And so uh but that being said, I, I think they have a, a great opportunity, especially with Matt Jones and Kentucky Sports Radio. He, he's a big name down here. So I'm, I'm really excited for the prospects of um, them continuing to do things. And I, and I hope at some point that uh, you know I'd be able to, to do some uh, cross-promotional stuff with, with OVW and whatnot because I, I think they've got a, a good crew of talent and certainly Al Snow knows what he's talking about. And uh, he, he definitely has helped take a, a step, in a, a, a good direction for obw especially with uh you know being able to get accredited as a trade school that was a pretty remarkable thing and uh, you know i think they have a, a lot of uh good things on the table that really could could flourish in the coming years
0: so are you kind of done wrestling in general you're right you, you haven't wrestled for probably about a year because of the pandemic but are you done wrestling
1: uh, no, if the right opportunity came, I think I'd still – I mean, I'm not looking for a second resurgence or looking to get signed or – I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I certainly would would take the opportunity if it came. But really, I I see my place in, in wrestling at, at this point. I, I would really much prefer, I feel, to be uh, on the, the creative side, whether it be writing or, or booking or producing, uh, agenting, if you will. But at the same time, actually, it's funny you say that because actually earlier this year, I decided that I was going to start – Uh, getting in in ring shape or in bump shape again, as we kind of alluded to earlier, and uh, and more so for the fact that you never know when you might get the call or or you never know when they might ask you to get in the ring and do something. I'd rather be ready for anything than to just assume that I'm not going to have those opportunities because usually as soon as you let your guard down is when you get the call to do something, and, and then at that point you're like, crap, I'm not prepared. And if Rip has taught me anything, he has a very famous saying, I think all the students would say, and he's like, always be sure you are over-effing prepared. Because when you're over-effing prepared, no matter what, you'll get over. Well said uh, by Rip. He's a very wise man, for sure. Oh, ab- yeah, absolutely. Like, like, like you said, a little bit crazy, but at the same time, when it comes to understanding the psychology of wrestling, he's, he's right on point.
0: So you have had quite a run, though, if you look at the OVW, like it says, basically 16 years or so, five-time tag team champ, two-time TV champ. Do you look back, though, and, and say, like, wow, like, what a run, or you don't really – you're not the type of guy to really look back and, and smell the roses?
1: Um, I, I always try to look at what's in front of me, but I'd say certainly I, I, when I do get get a chance to reflect and look back, I I am proud of the opportunities that uh, I got to be a part of and uh, the things I got to do. But I'd say even more importantly, I, I'm really grateful for the network of people and, and the, the friendships that I feel like I've, I've gained. You know, I've, I've, that's where I had the opportunity to, to get to know, like uh, we talked about Ben Hamin and Sharina Deeb and uh, Mike Mondo or Mikey from the Spirit Squad who I also became really good friends with and uh, people I'm still friends with to this day and talk to often. Uh, and just I feel like the networking aspect and getting a chance to know so many different minds and, and talents in wrestling uh i feel very grateful to have the opportunity to to get to meet so many different people from all different not just walks of life but walks of wrestling i feel, feel like and uh it was just a very unique time to be there and uh, definitely one that i don't take for granted because i, I realized it was definitely a, a special time for sure to be there
0: when you were working uh, with roh and i know you had a match against the Bristol brothers and a few other matches was that always in Louisville or the surrounding area, or were you kind of a part of ROH uh, outside of you know outside of home base?
1: No, I I had only had the the couple of matches at the the home base, but uh, but I I was grateful because I think we are uh, myself and my tag team partner uh, the the only two talents who I think. Uh, each time they came to the arena, it uh, always got booked. And because uh, I tried to rotate some guys around each time, and I, I think all three times they were at the arena, we, we managed to to be asked to work. And uh, it I, I think it comes down to the first match we had. It was with uh, – and i, I got to put him over to Chris Silvio, who does still uh, a lot of training as far as working with a lot of guys. Him and Matt Seidel have a great school down in Florida. Uh, him and his tag team partner uh, – uh, Raphael Constantine, uh, they were fighting spirit. But anyway, we had a tag team match at this Ring of Honor show, and the first match went out there, and they tried to work their traditional Southern-style wrestling, and the crowd just did not <laughs> go for it. Uh, and understandably so, but I, I think we had the foresight to to see that we were going to have to work a little bit of a different style, and uh, we were able to kind of do a, kind of a hybrid where we still told a, a good old-fashioned uh, tag team wrestling story where where the heel slipped over where uh, you know we were able to to get our feet on the ropes and, and help each other win uh, which you know a lot of times I feel like you don't have those those true heel finishes in wrestling anymore but prior to that we went out and gave them uh, high flying action that was you know uh, sold appropriately and and timed out well to where they got the right amount of action that they were looking for and and the hard hitting stuff that we we knew they wanted but still be able to, to give them a finish that they bought into. And I'd say really that was a very proud moment because we, especially seeing our, our colleagues go out there and I don't want to say they, they crapped the bed, but essentially for what the crowd wanted, they definitely didn't give it to them. And so we're thinking to ourselves, well, hopefully this will go over. And then when we got out there, of course, they didn't want to like it at first. And I think you can even see the match online somewhere. If you look up the elite versus fighting spirit, Uh, ring of honor but uh at the first they didn't really want to do anything but by the end of the match they were into it and just when they really kind of started to get into it we took it home and so uh after that we got an opportunity to work every time they came through unfortunately didn't get any other uh road opportunities but i felt like every time we had a chance to uh, get in the ring for ring of honor we we stepped up and were able to put on a good performance
0: that's great. That's a little old school, right? Uh, you know, paying attention to the crowd, listening to the crowd, getting the crowd into it. I know right now because of the pandemic, there's really no crowd to speak of. But that's like that old school philosophy,
1: right? And it is hard. And the only the only other time I can equate it to was uh, a very interesting experience. I wrestled at the gathering of the Juggalos one year. Oh man! Similar similar situation, wow. and uh, even harder for us because we went up there with uh, the two guys uh, that we knew we've had tons of tanky matches with. And then they put us apart. They put them with uh, guys they didn't know and put us with guys we didn't know, which was, you know, whatever. We knew how to work, but it was still kind of disappointing because we knew we could tear it up with our uh, – that we were used to working with. But, you know, Rip always says, you know, you got to be able to work with anybody. And uh, so that crowd also was not a, a very kind crowd. They they like to throw stuff if, if they don't like what's going on. And uh, I, I have to <laughs> – we, they really were there more to heckle. I feel like than watch a wrestling show, and that's just this is what it was. I, I've nothing bad to say. In fact, I'd love to get booked again. It was probably some of the most fun I've I've had in, in wrestling. Weirdly enough, was uh, getting the opportunity to wrestle there. But uh, but in our match again, they didn't want to like it. And then partway through the match, we noticed they were they were not heckling us as much. And then one guy with with a megaphone said, "You know, this match isn't that bad." And I was like, oh, "We got it. Let's take it home." <laughs> That's about the that's about the highest they ever got in that show. But the fact that we were one of the few matches that didn't have stuff thrown at us and, and heckled, uh, I at least feel like that we were able to to give them something entertaining uh, instead of just being another uh, par for the course, so to speak. Yeah, that's pretty impressive by you guys because I know those that, that is a
0: tough <laughs> tough crowd to. Uh, it was. To
1: get behind. It was. They, they wanted to see uh, people just about kill themselves or blood. Actually, I think that back. There was one guy that did get a huge pop. That he was not trained, I believe but he took the opportunity to climb the giant scaffolding above the ring, climb to the middle and then fall down about almost killing himself, but he didn't die. Fortunately. And uh, the crowd popped for that because he just about risked life and limb, but you know, that's just more of what they're looking for at those shows. And uh, you know, it's, it was a difficult crowd, but the fact that (laughs) we were one of the few that didn't uh, get the, the just reamed by the crowd, uh, I have to say at the very least, I felt proud of that too. Now, as we, Head for the finish, head
0: towards the wind down. Just kind of curious, where do you see yourself, like, in a few years? Are you still going to be wrestling? Are you still going to be primarily focused on the podcasting? What are you going to be doing?
1: I'd say my passion is absolutely in either performing or helping form performances for live audiences. So I'd say I I do very much enjoy podcasting. It's been really, I'd say, a blessing in this pandemic. Give me something to do in the meantime until we can start having crowds again. But I'd say, you know, in a few years I I would love to be in some kind of – I wouldn't even say I I would necessarily even want a head booker role. In fact, I I honestly really don't. But I would love to at least be on – uh, either uh, a writing team to, to help implement ideas and bring some of that old school uh, psychology of wrestling that I, that I know if implemented the right way could absolutely still work today. It's just all in how you do it. Uh, or either being an agent or producer and helping guys. Uh, I guess do the business that they need to in order to enhance their story from from the creative team. Um, so I'd say definitely that's where I'd like to be uh, in a few years time, or or even possibly even running uh, our own show actually. When once things hopefully can open up here in the next year, uh, myself and a group of guys we're investing in a just a small wrestling company, and our our only true goal is to have a place for uh, local talent that's good, to have a place to work and get exposed and be able to have everyone, including the company, make money every show. And so we're we're going to every show with a budget and a plan, uh, a marketing uh, tool and the ways that uh, we're going to basically present the show so that way uh, we'll basically have a weekly episodic television show that we 're going to create as part of it once things open up again, which might not be till the end of the summer uh looking at things now, but you know that could if that ends up you know taking off and and running and you know maybe even get some kind of distribution deal, who knows maybe I might be uh, you know part uh, owner slash booker of of a, just a regional wrestling company. But uh, either way, I definitely plan to be involved in, in wrestling for, for the long haul. And uh, I don't know where I'll be five years from now, but I, I can guarantee I will be a part of wrestling and, and part of the live audience experience that comes with coming to a wrestling show. Good stuff, of course. Kind of just one
0: thing I'm always curious about, especially with you, you, you know, you've been around so much. You get, it seem like you've experienced all these different fields. But is there any regrets that you had in the business, like something like you wish you
1: did or, or maybe you did and you wish you didn't do it? I would say, well, two things. I would say, and I, I, I really try to, in my later years, trying to say they're, they're not necessarily regrets, but things that I do wish I would have done differently. And, and that's one, I, I, I wish I would have gotten in shape sooner. I wish I would have uh, gotten the, the, I guess, those habits earlier in life. Granted, it was just what I was exposed to, but I wish I would have trained uh, uh, sooner in my life, and then I wish I would have been more assertive with uh, asking for opportunities and, and trying to get opportunities, because really that's what it comes down to, is being at the right place in the right time, and, and part of me feels like if I would have uh, been the squeaky wheel, so to speak, eventually I would have gotten the oil somewhere, but you know, you live and you learn, and that's where what I'm trying to do now is, is give back as much as I can to the next generation and part pond them while at the same time trying to find my role in, in helping to to shape the wrestling landscape. Uh, there's actually, I'll tell a quick story. One experience in particular is where if you ever get the opportunity to to talk to Vince or whoever use that opportunity. Um, uh, when I got the call to be an extra for the CM Punk angle and they shaved my head, uh, we, uh, Went back backstage, and uh, John Laurinaitis meets me at the curtain and says, hey, the boss wants to talk to you. And I was like, oh, shit. And so uh, he took me over to, to Vince in front of the, uh, the gorilla in front of all the screens, and Vince re- reaches his hand out, shakes my hand. And my, my gimmick name for the segment was James, <laughs> which isn't even my <laughs> real name. But he called me James. He goes, James, great job out there. And shook my hand, and it just had this moment. And I wish every part of me wishes I would have taken the opportunity and said, well, sir, I can do a hell of a lot more than that. I'd love the opportunity to show you because who knows, maybe that would have been my shot. But I was just show, I guess, just in, in awe of the moment. Uh, and it was something that I still think, I feel was, it was a cool moment to have, but I wish I would have taken the the initiative and the opportunity because perhaps that could have been uh, the opportunity. But if if I would have done that, it would have been a whole different path And maybe some of the other things I got to experience in doing wrestling wouldn't have come to pass. So at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're just – we're dealt the cards that we're dealt, and we play them how we, we feel we need to play them, and – you know, there's always going to be another hand that comes around and another chance to play and, and, and bet your chip. So uh, that's the way I see it. But I'd say for any young wrestler, if you get the opportunity to talk with someone that is in a position of power, influence, and, and you had a good performance and they're putting you over, take that opportunity to, to ask for, for not necessarily a job, but just to let them know that they haven't seen nothing yet and you'd love the opportunity to show them because that very well could be your opportunity to get signed.
0: Great advice, and I feel like that's a pretty cool experience you had there. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, it was. It was definitely, I'd say, definitely intimidating, especially someone that grew up watching wrestling and and, and new and new. Obviously, you know, the buck stops there as far as that goes. Uh, so to get uh, put over for just you know, uh, essentially a, a, a just a segment uh, and character work, not really even wrestling. It was, uh, I guess, surreal for the moment, and, and definitely something. Despite the fact that I didn't take advantage of it, still something that I'm very proud of.
0: Great stuff. Now,
1: please give us all your
0: plugs where everybody can find you, social media and otherwise.
1: Oh, sure, Yeah, You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Ted the Man Beast. Uh, feel free to follow me there. Uh, or uh, you can also catch me every Monday on the Monday Locker Room. Uh, you can download that at uh, hackerhameen.podbean.com, or you can catch us live at Hameen Media Group on our YouTube channel. Uh, we just go through all the headlines. Uh, ben Hameen brings his, uh, his very strong, uh, his, uh, maybe sometimes a little cynical opinion on wrestling, and I always try to see the bright side of things, and I feel like we balance off each other well because while we have – a lot of times, similar opin- opinions, we have very different approaches to it, and uh, I think it's a lot of fun to just kind of go over the, the different headlines and, and talk shop about that, and uh, certainly if, if you're looking to uh, to talk shop with us, then uh, feel free to join in. It's com or on YouTube at Humming Media Group. And i uh, love for you all to check it out. Uh, send us your messages. And, oh, I, I'd be remiss, Rip, Rip would kill me if I didn't. There's also the FR Podcast. Uh, It's a Patreon gimmick that uh, we have. It's at patreon.com slash hummingmedia group. But every week, Rip uh, goes over different wrestling things, and he just goes off on tangents. Uh, We, we, I think, had to do uh, a paywall with Patreon with Rip, because certainly some of the stuff he says is just, you know, he's a very opinionated man, and he doesn't sugarcoat anything. So, we thought this would be a good opportunity for him to go off on his rants that, that we love him for and, and let some of the fans here uh, rip go off about these things. So definitely if you get a chance to check that out, we have some clips up on the uh, Homie Media Group YouTube channel for free, and I uh, would love for you all to check it out sometime. Awesome stuff. Man Beast, great uh, yeah. to talk to you. Oh, John, you I, get... I'd, I'd, I'd be really remiss if I didn't mention, uh, I, I promise, this is the very last thing. Oh, yeah. uh, if if you're looking to book me for your show, either uh, to help book or or as a talent or what have you, or just uh, an advisory role, whatever you need, you can reach out to me at bookthedoctor at gmail.com, and uh, I look forward to to having the opportunity to to serve and add value to to any show uh, that might want my services.
0: Nice, that was the most uh, important plug. You almost yeah, I know. That. I know.
1: Geez, Rip, Rip would have really he would have he would have wrung my neck. <laughs>
0: All right, Ted, thank you uh, so much uh, for all the time. Really appreciate
1: it. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure, my friend, and I look forward to hopefully have an opportunity to talk to you sometime down the road.
0: This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube.